joining us online. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We left off in 2 Samuel chapter 15. And I was noting that 2 Samuel seems to go through, well, it does indeed go through chapter 24. And my thought, if you have major objections, those of you who are here, let me know. Or those of you online, send me an email. If you have major objections, I think the tentative plan is just to roll on to First and Second Kings. First Kings looks like it picks up with Solomon, uh, whom we've already been introduced to, and just briefly in 2 Samuel, and then on into the divided, the divided monarchy, the divided kingdom, and that uh, interesting but depressing section of, of Scripture. So that will be the plan unless I hear otherwise that you'd like to take a major turn in another direction, which is fine with me too, of course. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, we are about to pick up with Absalom's conspiracy. If you recall from last week, there was a tenuous kind of uh, reconciliation that took place. You can see that based on uh, Joab's doing, where he convinced the woman, this is really the, the content of chapter 14, he convinced this woman... Uh, intelligent, wise woman to come and basically do a Nathan on David. Once again, only she's the living, she's the living parable. Has the king weigh in this decision about the one son who kills another, perfectly paralleling, of course, how Absalom has uh, murdered Amnon. And of course, David weighs in the case that uh, the, the son who, even though he was the murderer, um, he should be uh, he should be allowed to live, and so too then his judgment is that Absalom should be allowed to live. All right, well, Absalom is brought back, but not allowed into the king's house. He complains about this to Joab, and Joab doesn't listen, doesn't answer his email, doesn't answer his text, and so finally then Absalom decides, well, I'll get his attention, I'm going to burn down his fields. So you kind of get a sense for Joab's character, I think, here. But the result then is at the end of chapter 4, you have this very tenuous kind of reconciliation. Uh, so he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. All right. Still, obviously, a lot of tension here. Chapter 15 we have also, by the way, I should say this by way of meta-narrative, by way of uh, theological typology. We're seeing here, uh, even though the relationship is different, we're seeing hints and allusions to uh, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. The betrayal of David by Absalom has many parallels to this. Uh, in fact, we're going to, I'll draw out some more of those parables at the, or uh, par parallels, excuse me. And at the end of uh, last week's period, I had pointed out one or two that we had already seen in the text. So we will keep that in mind also. 
the king who is betrayed. I mean, that could easily be a description of David or Jesus, you see. Chapter 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. These are elite fighting forces. So this is, he's got his own Navy SEALs group. And Absalom, wait, did we, we did this, didn't we? We did, we did through 12, through verse 12. No, up to 19. <laughs> okay, well, let's not start there then. Sorry. As I read this and study this and reread this and study this and teach, I forget what I actually taught and what I actually studied. All right, so yeah, fair enough. We got all the way through, through 17? Yeah, okay, through 17. Chapter 15, verse 17. Okay, so what we see here then, Absalom is building up his, uh, he's building up this little military entourage and he is uh, sitting at the gate and he's saying, gosh, you know, it's too bad David's too busy to judge and weigh your cases. I could weigh and judge your cases. And in many ways, he's working to undermine David. Now, there's, of course, there's some parallels here. But, but David, had, uh, David had the blessing of the Lord. And he was blessed by the Lord to conquer in military victory. And thus, Saul begins to be undermined when he's king by David. But this undermining isn't David's doing. It's God's doing. Here, Absalom undermining David, but Absalom isn't anointed by God. And this undermining isn't God's doing. It's Absalom's doing. And so there's a type anti-type here in terms of God calling David and blessing David over and against Saul, the sitting king, versus God not calling Absalom, not blessing Absalom, but Absalom still conspiring and working against the uh, sitting king, in this case, David. Okay, so that's what we've seen. Oh, what else do we have here? Yeah, well, verse 7. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. Of course, that's where David is crowned. Your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord which is suspicious, of course. This just comes out now. The king said to him, go in peace. So he rose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. So he's going to the place where David was anointed. He's going there to be uh, proclaimed king, anointed in a sense. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor. And I think we pointed out that he is also possibly the grandfather of Bathsheba. So that's an interesting, dramatic point, if true. Uh, and he is sent for from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Not good. Now the new material, or no, not even the new material, I guess. Verse 13, and a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. How heart-wrenching for David, of course. I mean, in the one sense, just pure anger and um, we know David's very strong, very strong theological sense of the kingship and being anointed, so much so that he refused to lift a finger against Saul as the Lord's anointed and killed those who did lift a, a finger against Saul. 
so this is a, theolog- a very, very painful theological reality for David that um, Absalom has not been anointed. And then also uh, what we would think of as the civil or left-hand kingdom. I mean, here's a usurper. So there's like an, an, a revolutionary treason. So you've got those feelings going on. And then, of course, this is David's son. And a son in whom there's already been tons of, or through whom there's already been tons of drama with the murder of one of his other sons and, of course, the rape and, of course, David's inability to properly govern his family through that crisis. So this is it is all coming to a head for David. And we would be remiss if we didn't recall that this is what uh, the Lord said through Nathan, that the sword is not going to leave your house. And on account of his sin with Bathsheba, this is part and parcel of that punishment. Verse 14, then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. So it is, it is David's assessment. Yeah, I don't know. The study note makes an interesting point. By leaving the city, David could choose where, when, and how he would fight. Not sure that that makes a a whole lot of sense. In addition, he could determine who his true servants and loyal supporters were. That makes some sense. The innocent would be spared to siege. That makes sense. But you recall that prior to David conquering Jerusalem, no one had successfully conquered Jerusalem. So if they just fortified that sucker up, it took a miraculous act of God for David to take Jerusalem. Could Absalom have done it? I don't know. It's an interesting point. Another possibility, of course, is that David thinks that he doesn't, have the, he doesn't have the numbers, or at least not the numbers to defend Jerusalem as such in the long run. It's hard to say what's going on, but regardless of what's going on, David, what's very clear is David makes this decision. He says to those who are with him in Jerusalem, out we go. Go quickly, he continues, lest he, Absalom, overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the, uh, yeah, the study note points out that they should have been allowed peacefully just to stay and do their duty. They're basically functioning as housemaids at that point. Verse 17, And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites. Remember, these are the non-Israelite military units that are they're fighting on his side. And all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath. That's a reference to those who were with him from the very, very beginning. Gath being the Philistine, Philistine city and a reminder of, of David fighting on the Philistine side for a time. Well, kind of. You understand how that's nuanced. They all passed before the king. All right. Verse 19, then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, 
Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Etay announced, or Etay, I don't really don't know how to say that, answered the king, as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Very, very interesting in terms of layers and, and biblical motif going on here. You have an exile into the desert passing through water. You have a, an almost an exodus reversal motif going on. Um, you also have, look at the, the swearing fealty, the swearing fealty as the king is being betrayed. Very reminiscent of Peter's oath of fealty to the Lord, uh, to, to our king, when he was being betrayed. Now, as David is betrayed, he's going to cross over the brook Kidron, and uh, we'll, see, we'll see what follows. But as Jesus um, leaves on the night when he's betrayed uh, into, into Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives, he passes over the the brook Kidron as well. And so there are some parallels there between David's betrayal and Jesus' betrayal. <coughs> Verse 24, And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Again, this is in contrast to Saul. We have to do that. A complete breath of fresh air. David is perceiving things theologically. He's perceiving things humbly. He's acknowledging that this is in the Lord's hands. And also, he's not going to use the Ark of the Covenant like a magical talisman, the way that Saul did. Back into the, back into the city it goes uh, to remain safe, and if David can return to it, then that will be the Lord's doing. So, beautiful piety here. Yes, sir? Yeah, I like how that saying is, because you see it a couple times, uh, let him do to me what seems good. It reminds me of... Uh, uh, you know, when the high priest, when they fell over, he was all fat and old, and his sons got captured, and uh, mm. and remember Samuel had to come to him and said, "You better tell me the truth." Yeah, and that's what that's what he says. He says after Samuel tells him, "Not some pleasant words that God's gonna get you." Right. Yeah. Yeah. There are some interesting parallels with that. I, I would, I mean, again, it just depends on how you read the character of Eli there. I tend to see them in antithesis, but I suppose you could see them in, in a kind of a 
parallel. I mean, another, another fact as we read this Christologically, that this is David's betrayal, the, king, the shepherd king's betrayal, just as our Lord Jesus is betrayed. Uh, here, you have, here you have David submitting himself to the will of God, just as Jesus in the garden will pray, thy will be done. And so you can think of those as theologically overlapping. You know, let him do to me what seems good to him is in effect exactly identical to Jesus saying, Thy will be done. All right, well, verse 27, The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. I think the idea there is, are you not a seer? Which is, I think, a wordplay is going on here. In other words, go back to the city and be my eyes and be a seer. You know, prophetically tell me what happens and what's going on and what I should do. Um, I think, again, a play on words, because a seer generally means a prophet, and it doesn't seem to be a literal sense there. All right, verse 32, while David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, and if you look at this, you know, it says, apparently the Mount of Olives, apparently the Mount of Olives was a high place, that's verse 30. Um, oh, yeah, 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 David went up the ascent to the Mount of Olives. Did I, I must have skipped something. Did I skip verse 30? Sorry about that. Verse 30, but David went up the ascent of Mount of, to the Mount of Olives. That's directly parallel to what Jesus. Weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. These are signs of uh, repentance and humility. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Again, Ahithophel is the uh, potential grandfather of Bathsheba, and apparently a wise man. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. It's just such a beautiful prayer. I mean, it really is in terms of like, the, you know, your enemies conspiring against you. There's an acknowledgement here, an implicit acknowledgement on the part of David that Ahithophel is indeed a wise man and, a, and a, someone who's given him great counsel. And um, you know, David has reason to be concerned that now he's linked forces on the opposite side. And so this is a beautiful prayer. You know, not strike him dead, but please turn his counsel to foolishness. All right, verse 32. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, and that's note on 32. Apparently the Mount of Olives was a high place. Not in the idolatrous sense that it later takes but a place where God is worshipped. Behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. 
But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. So here too, Hushai the archite, David is employing him uh, to be, you know, to go back to Jerusalem and to basically, I mean, effectively be a spy. He wants to follow David in loyalty just like Zadok and Ahithophel, but David says, just like them, go back to the city and tell me what, tell them and they'll tell me. Verse 36, Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son, and by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. There's also this theme going on too. You can tell by the names of the people around David that he's, he is the king not just of, of the Jews. There are Gentile people all around him and loyal to him. And we've been reminded of that um, multiple, multiple places here in chapter 15. So it, it is, of course, very fitting and very parallel to Jesus, uh, to his betrayal and to his being crowned as king of the, the Jews on the cross, but very clearly not being king of the Jews only, but also being, uh, also being king of the Gentiles, king of the whole world. Okay, well, there we are so far. Any questions, any thoughts, anything uh, obvious to you that I missed in uh, chapter 15? Well, how come you didn't pick mm. up on that? It's true. That's true, yes. Um, I won't be able to summarize your comments for those online, but hopefully make the point nonetheless. You can see that one of the perversions of the Hebrew religion, known as Judaism at the time of Jesus, uh, one, of the, one of the major perversions is it had become this entirely insular thing where... You're only in if you're a Jew. <clears throat> you're only in if you've been circumcised. And there's even, even after Christ and the Christian church and all of that, the earliest Judaizers are those who are coming in and saying, yeah, yeah, Christ and all that, we believe too, but you've got to be circumcised. You know? And you've, that is, you've got to be, if you're not, if you're not actually a, an Israelite after the flesh, you've got to at least act like one in all things. So, yeah, there's... You, what, you, what you tend to see is you tend to see a drifting away in the, it, when we're analyzing early Judaism, you know, first century Judaism, and then what Judaism becomes and is even today to many, in many respects. It's a rejection of the messianic heart of the Old Testament. That's number one. And, uh, and then number two is it's a rejection of God's salvation for all people. They want to retain that special status in such a way that it precludes other people. So, yeah, you see both of those aspects. All right, well, certainly we could spend more time sermonizing, and I, I, can, see other, I can see other less plausible types uh, kind of emerging in this text. That's why I've been pausing from time to time, um, but I, you know, I'll just leave it lie where we've, where we've put it. Let's go into chapter 16 then. This, of course, uh, this whole tragedy with Absalom marks a major, major section in uh, the entire corpus of Samuel, First and Second Samuel together. Um, 
but 2 Samuel in particular. Chapter 16, verse 1, When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Okay, well, this is a complicated, this is a complicated arrangement, of course. But Mephibosheth, do you recall this from earlier? Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, crippled in his legs. And David was exceedingly kind to, to Mephibosheth. And Ziba being the servant. The fact that in David's great trial, uh, Ziba shows up with all of these gifts, that's in keeping with Ziba's wonderful and faithful character. The fact that Mephibosheth doesn't, uh, doesn't come and bring his good tidings and that kind of thing. I mean, that's the question. Why have you brought, why have you brought these? Um, yeah, and then where is your master's son? That should be... Uh, yeah, let me look in the study note here so I don't get my wires crossed. Because it... Wait a minute, yeah. Okay, upon David's return to Jerusalem, Mephibosheth denied this accusation. See, that's why it gets a little complicated in chapter uh, 19. Because he was lame in both his legs, it would have been difficult for him to leave Jerusalem. Furthermore, there was no reason to suppose that Absalom would give the kingdom to the household of Saul by supporting David and bearing false witness against his master. Ziba probably hoped to free himself from Mephibosheth and take possession of his master's lands. See, there's the double cross and the complexity. Or, perhaps with pious but misguided zeal, he hoped to serve David's house instead of Saul's. Saul's, David believed Ziba at this time. So, yeah, we've got to wait till 19, chapter 19, to get a little more data here. Yeah, but that's what I mean by, like, this is complex, and, like, who's telling the truth here? All right, well, we don't have to sort that out. We can simply leave it set for the time being. And as we gather more data, particularly in chapter 19, we can revisit this a little and see if we can make any sense of it. But All right, verse 5. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And, he, and as he came, he cursed continually. I mean, not only is he cursing the ruler, but there's definitely probably this sense of like, you know, D- David, you were, you were a rival to Saul. Now you're getting your up and comings, you know, that kind of thing. 
probably the nature of what it is. And then verse 6, and he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the peoples and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. There is a, there is a grain of truth in there, of course. Not so much with Saul. I mean, that's where the accusation is wrong, couching in the language of Saul. But in the language of this actually being the vengeance of the Lord, that thread is true. Uh, just in the sense that when David obviously slept with Bathsheba, murdered Uriah, God through Nathan said, this is you know, going to happen. And then furthermore, like what you've, done in, what you've done in secret will be done on the rooftops. And so here it is. But this is a, a kind of gloating and taunting of the enemies. I mean, very, very reminiscent of the Pharisees gloating and taunting over Christ when he's on the cross. But Yeah, because when you look at it, you, you realize he's incorrect in some ways because David never took a hand of salt. Yeah. He was killed by the Philistines. So, yeah. And who, who does he think he is? I mean, he's a <laughs> That's a great point. Yeah, for those of you online, I don't know if you could hear, but it's like, who does this guy think he is? Uh, and furthermore, he's wrong. Yeah, he's wrong. That I mean, David really did not wrong the house of Saul in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, great point. Great point. All right, I don't know about you, but I'm having a hard time keeping all these names straight. I must not have slept well enough last night. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. <laughs> but the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing, Abishai, isn't that Joab's brother? Pretty sure that is. Let me see. No, it doesn't say right there, but it gives us notes earlier on. I think that is Joab's brother. Abishai and Joab were the ones that avenged the third brother that was killed. All right, well, what is the king's response to this? What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? Seeming to refer there also to Joab. If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? See, and that's, a, that's, a, that's exactly the point that I was trying to get at, is there's a grain of truth. David hears through all the lies and misinformation. David hears the voice of the Lord in the middle of that. That's huge. That's really huge. Yeah, that, I mean, that's really rather profound spiritual maturity. He sees through all that's wrong, but hears the voice of the Lord in what's right. Hmm. Verse 11, And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. 
so David and his men, and David also sees this then as an exercise for mercy and to commend his case into the hands of God. I mean, David could very easily take this case into his own hands and have him, have him killed, but, God, but David is merciful and then commends the case into God's hands, which, of course, in a sense, in a sense is what David's done with this whole Absalom thing, too. If the Lord wills that I return, that kind of thing. He's commended the vengeance. He's commended the whole thing into God's hands. It's really rather remarkable. Again, 2 Samuel is so deceptive in this sense that it, it presents to us as if it were mere history or as if it were a narrative, but everywhere it invites you to, to like sit down and actually ponder this and to take it in deeply. What is actually going on and how is David thinking about these things? Um, that because they, there must there is much wisdom hidden in here, very difficult to appropriate and to grasp hold of. But that's the that's the nature of this text. There's much more than mere history, much more than meets the eye. Okay, verse thirteen ish. So David and his men went on the road. Well, Shammai went along the hillside opposite him. Oh, my gosh. And cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. I mean, how's that for the soundtrack of your life going on? It's like as if things weren't bad enough. You've got your enemies dancing along the hill, throwing rocks at you and your family, taunting you. Maybe second only to Jesus is the patience of David. I mean, that's incredible. And you could just end it all like that. Ah, oh, it's incredible. I mean, just like our Lord, kind of <laughs> even hanging from the cross, right? Ah, oh, incredible. Incredible humility. Lesson in humility. All right, verse 14. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. Whenever you're at the Jordan, it's significant. And there he refreshed himself. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his sons? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. All right. So obviously, obviously Absalom, this is his quote-unquote triumphal entry. He has Ahithophel with him, who again, this is the this is the great counselor, the great wise man. And then Hushai, who we know is, uh, at least at this point, we know is a double agent. And he is suspect right off the bat, but he seems to convince Absalom. 
least he gives it his best shot. Verse 20, then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. All right, so um, this, is, this is what God through Nathan proclaimed would be the punishment as David's uh, adultery was in, he meant to keep it a secret. What he did in secret um, was going to be done unto him upon the rooftops. And so that's um, this, uh, I mean, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we just have no real parallel to this in our culture. But Absalom is going to go in and not only take his father's house, but take his father's concubines and do this thing publicly. And then this has the effect of galvanizing. I mean, this is uh, a, to become a stench in David's nostrils. It's like, it's like maybe there could have been some reconciliation. Maybe, maybe David would see and peacefully give over the throne. I mean, who knows, who knows what's going on? Maybe people would sympathize for David since he left without a fight. But this sort of thing that like this, the, the advice of Ahithophel is like, no, we're going to make the divide deeper. We're really going to cut these two apart, and they're going to hate each other, the, those that are following Absalom, those that are following David. That really is, seems to be the intent of this action, the intent of this counsel that uh, Ahithophel gives. All right, um, verse 23, Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. Wow. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Mm. Thus David's prayer, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. All right, chapter 17, verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Well, of course, this plan makes good sense in terms of ending the conflict. But this is theologically loaded, isn't it? I mean, here it's like, it's like drinking a fine wine and you have all these different like hints and notes and flavors. And what the hints and notes and flavors you have is, Remember the high priest, it would be expedient for one man to die for the people. Remember what he says about Jesus? It's so close to what Ahithophel here counsels. We're going to go kill one man. You know, and they killed, the, what was the motivation of the religious leaders for killing Jesus? Ultimately, it was jealousy, and he didn't want them to lead the people off. And so, look, we'll kill Jesus, and the people will come back to us. I mean, it's exactly what Ahithophel counsels. And then, two, what's the other? What's the other? Oh, yeah, 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 strike down the king. It's so reminiscent of what Jesus says. They'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Strike the king. So many just hints and flavors and allusions right there to, uh, 
to the dynamic that our Lord Jesus, the shepherd king, faced. Um, here, David faces the same. Oh, kill the air and take it off. Hey, great point. Great point. That's right. This from this last Sunday. Okay. Well, verse 5. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. This is such a great case, isn't it? Such a great argument. I mean, it's perfect. Again, this should be turned into a movie. This is fantastic. Fantastic drama. You could be doing, as he's speaking, you could do flashbacks to all of David's impossible conquests. You know, the final scene crescendoing him with him lopping off the head of the giant. <laughs> This is a great play. All right, verse 11. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. <laughs> Love it. Love it. This might be a proof text against voters' meetings. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Yeah, and here you see the Lord's hand in the whole thing. So that it's not it's not just the good speech, but it's the Lord's it's the Lord's doing in and through the speech, and perhaps even apart from the speech working this, this miracle that Ahithophel would be overturned by Hushai. Or Hushai, I reserve the right to mispronounce all of these names. <laughs> all right. Then Hushai, or Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar. Now remember, these are the other two men. They were the ones carrying the, the Ark of the Covenant. These are the other two men in league with David. 
Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. So in a sense here, I think, I think you could argue, I think you could argue that uh, Hushai's plan is, is in the first place to buy David time so that Ahithophel and this band can't just ride out and do the deed. We're going to gather all Israel first and squash them to death. Well, that's going to take time. Meanwhile, the message goes out to David, and so David has time and ability to escape. I think that that's probably the logistics of the plan. All right, verse 17. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it. Um, this is obviously a well flat on the ground. And nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. Of course, you have kind of an exodus from the promised land and a, rever a reversal motif going on here, and that's, that's certainly uh, in the background here. Verse 23, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. <laughs> he set his house in order and hanged himself. Ooh, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Boy, here's a betrayer of the king hanging himself. Not unlike, not unlike Judas. This is interesting. Look at the study note on 23. More than wounded pride is evident in Ohithophel's suicide. He was deliberate, first setting his house in order. With his great wisdom, he reckoned that David would prevail and return to the throne and that his own life would be forfeited because of his high treason. Perhaps he also recognized God's hand at work against him. Very interesting. Very interesting. You can have all the wisdom in the world and be a fool, which is how it ended for him, I suppose. All right, verse 24. Do I have time? Yeah, I've got time. Good. 
Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all, men, with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. Yeah, it's interesting. They kept Joab, they kept Joab, but they replaced him with uh, this, this other fellow, with Amasa. All right, verse 27, when David came to Mahanine, Shobi the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Makir the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey and curds, and sheep and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Yeah, this is very interesting. So the study note points this out, study note on 27. Apparently the governor of Rabbah, after David defeated his brother Hanun, referring back to chapters 10 and 12, like his father Nahash, Shobi dealt loyally with David. And then Makur provided for Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, before David restored to him all Saul's land and brought him to eat at the king's table. And then, of course, Barzillai, a very old and very rich non-Israelite. I mean, what's incredible here is that what's being emphasized in the text over and over and over again are how all these non-Israelites are gathering around and helping David. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. Because his own, his own people have, have uh, turned their backs on him. Very interesting. Yeah. In light of Christ, right? Yeah. You see, you see that over and over in Isaiah. You know, mm-hmm. When he's talking about the light came to the Gentiles in Galilee. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's even, it's even sadly true. What's, what's true here is true in the incarnation. It's true in the crucifixion. And it's true in the end times that have gone on from, from Christ's ascension to the very present. You have his own people rejecting him and, uh, and the Gentiles coming to his side, coming to his aid and remembering his mercy and faithfulness to them and thus uh, serving him. Really remarkable. Really remarkable. Okay. Boy, I kind of hate to get into this next part with seven minutes left. Let's see how far we can get. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army one-third under the command of Joab. Oh, interesting. Then Joab must have gotten replaced. Mm. Joab departed with David, and so that's the sense of verse 
That's the sense of verse 24. Ama he's, they set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. It's not as though Joab was there. That makes more sense to me. Okay, so David, uh, David has Joab then. David sent out the army one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth ten thousand of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate. I think they're right, and just tactically, logically, that seems to be exactly wherever David is. That's where all their attention is going to be directed. It's, a, you know, if they've other, if they don't know where David is, such or they can't get to him, they have a much greater advantage. All right. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. Probably not more than a few thousands, although it's hard to say with all these groups of Gentiles kind of gathering around. Maybe we'll get an exact number. I'm not sure. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Gosh, isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? And Yeah. To me, he doesn't pick up on the danger. Solomon picked up the danger of his own brother, mm. where David is not picking up the danger. It's almost like he's unaware of, doesn't want to face reality. Mm. That he's been that he's been betrayed. You mean? Yeah, because I mean Solomon. Remember his brother wanted, and then his asked his mother, "Hey, would you ask my brother if I can marry this so and so?" And he says, "No." and then has him killed, because he knows the betrayal is there. Hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think David's well aware of, I mean, my take on it is I think David's well aware that, uh, of the danger. I mean, what I think is interesting, what I think is actually interesting in this text, maybe I'll point it out positively like this. A, David assumes they're going to win. Okay. Right? Because look, he says, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. I mean, we've seen David's faithfulness and humility, and he's relying on the Lord. There's no doubt about it. But in David's mind, he's also saying, I am the Lord's anointed. The Lord has predicted that this thing is going to befall me, but I'm still his. He hasn't, he hasn't predicted that the kingdom is going to be you know, stripped from me. Even though David seems to be grossly outnumbered, he's confident that he's going to win. He knows exactly what Absalom has done, and yet he's going to be merciful to Absalom. And that seems to be right-fitting with the character of David, where all along the way he's been merciful to his enemies. Of course, David merciful to Saul all the way through. But then at various times, too, in his, in his own monarchy and reign, he's, he's been merciful in surprising ways. And I think in that respect we can see how David is a man after the heart of God, as the Scriptures say, um, both in terms of his repentance, his humility, which is, of course, what the heart of God wants for us, wants our hearts to be like, but also in terms of David's willingness to be merciful and forgiving, even to someone like Absalom. I mean, I think, I don't know, it's hard to say. 
Yeah, so your, que your question's a good question or an interesting one. Why is it that David allows him back into, um, oh gosh, I forget where he, he was, but he allows him back into Jerusalem, yeah. but then not into the house, but then into the house and embraces him, but it's less yeah. than warm. Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting question. I'll simply give you my take on that. David is deeply conflicted about Absalom uh, and probably deeply conflicted because because of the parallel nature to I mean, what is what has gone on amongst his sons, a gross and grievous violation of the sixth commandment in the rape of Tamar, followed by a, a gross and grievous violation of the fifth commandment, one of his sons killing his own son, killing his brother. Um, it's quite parallel to David's own sins, where he, where first is the sixth commandment breakage with uh, Bathsheba, followed by the murder of Uriah, and just this in this this inability of David to to deal with that in a in a fair and prudent way. We we see David maybe should have cared for Tamar more than he did. He didn't. Maybe should have executed justice upon. Absalom, or at least done something there, at least reprimanded him in some way, shape, or form, didn't. Um, th then, then it kind of comes out that, that he does, and then he doesn't know if to bring him back. I mean, David's wrestling. This was kind of what I was trying to get at with uh, last week, is that sin has these consequences in us that are, that are like psychological in nature. I mean, they're spiritual in nature in the sense that what's da whatever David does, he's going to have his conscience accusing him of being hypocritical. And the lines between justice and mercy and what you should do get really blurred and mangled and messed up when you've committed grievous sin. And I think we see David suffering from that. But be that as it may, even when you've had this ultimate kind of apostasy and falling away from David and betrayal, David now, like with, with as much clarity as he's been granted in the situation, says, effectively says, look, we're going to win. And when we do, please be merciful to my enemy. To this man who has been an enemy to me, you know, which of course is, I mean, taking this home to Christ, that's what Christ would wish for Judas. I mean, no doubt about it. Christ would wish for Judas that he would come to repentance and that he would not have hung himself. Um, that's, what, that's what Jesus wishes for all who betray him. Yeah. But see, I, I look at back and I'm looking at what David does after what had happened. Why David? Why aren't you going back to God and asking Him? Well, and that—that that, I think you could certainly make a case for that way back in uh, where we began today. You know, at the end of chapter four, I think at this point in time, David has sufficiently asked God. I think David, there's no question in David's mind what needs to happen at this point, what's going to happen at this point. But we'll have to leave off our reflections there for this week, and we'll simply pick up with chapter 18, verse six. I've sticky noted it right up until I take it off to do my studies next week. The Lord be with you.